1: From the Jill Schwartz Memorial Library here in Sultry, Savannah, Georgia, this is Obscure. Season 4 in American Tragedy. I'm your host, your friend, your ear lover, your literary mansplainer in chief Michael Ian Black. Approaching the new year with, as always, terror and resignation. I, you know, the days of optimism about the new year, faded perhaps in uh, 2016, heading into 2017, and my optimism has not yet recovered. Since that new year's, we have really just undergone horror after horror. I would say this past year, 2023, perhaps was a little bit better than the ones that preceded it, and yet this year was just a a misery, was it not, for so many in this world? Me, not so much. I mean, look, personally speaking, I'm fine. Slowly going broke, but fine. And, you know, I got no real complaints. In fact, I have, you know, a small thing to celebrate. Very small thing, by the way, which is that one of the great joys of having older children, and my kids are now 22 and 20, is that sometimes... They will do or say things that, you know, provoke some thought and some introspection or some fine conversation. For example, my daughter returned from Budapest a few weeks ago, recommended to me a book that she just finished called A Little Life by Hanya Yanagahara. I'd never heard of it. What do I know about Hanya Yanagahara? Nothing. And I didn't know this book, although I guess it's very popular, won the... Some award with the Kirkus award for fiction or something came out in 2015 Kirkus prize for fiction. And, um, so she, she finished it. It's like 600 pages. She's like, Hey, I think you should read this. I started reading it. It's terrific. Great book. And you know, it gives me and my daughter something to talk about. Not that we don't have things to talk about, but you know, it's fun. It's fun having an adult child or children with whom you can share adult pleasures. And that maybe sounded, uh, not at all the way I intended it to, but you understand my meaning. As you get older, there's things that you and your adult children can do together that you couldn't do with them when they were kids. Conversations you can have, you know, books you can read together, films you can watch, all kinds of stuff. And they have a, a more mature perspective. The other thing I've discovered is that you start valuing their opinion, which is maybe a good thing or maybe not. And I can see how, as the wife and I get older we may eventually like so many older parents seniors start to rely on your kids a little bit i don't want that to happen i don't want to be i don't want to be reliant on my children in any way not financially or emotionally or you know i don't care what their opinions are ultimately about things that are inconsequential and i shouldn't say that I'm, i let me revise what i just said i do care about their opinions but i'm i'm hoping that they're not going to sway me too much from my own course of action but you know as i become befuddled and derelict maybe their opinions will have more weight for me than they currently do not to say they don't have weight with me now they do i like talking to my kids you know they're smart they're fun they're good they're good folks so and it's striking to me reading you know, this contemporary novel, A Little Life, about four young American adults. Well, it starts off that way anyway. I'm, I'm only a, it's a big book. It's like 600 pages. I'm about a third of the way through. And they, they remain young adults through my eyes and probably older adults through my daughter's eyes. Right now in the book, they're like in their 30s, but they, early 30s, but they met when they were in college And it's just striking how different the language is and the way the story is unspooled versus Dreiser's An American Tragedy. It's both more familiar and less familiar. Part of the conceit of the novel is a sort of take on... Not a take, I I don't even know if that's accurate, but a a jig, let's call it a jig on postmodernism, you know? And there's elements of postmodernism in that novel. But interestingly... One of the characters is a portrait artist, and he is told by his professors in his school days that, you know, realism, portrait art is dead, and he goes on to have some success as a portrait artist, but it's a little bit funny because the book itself is also sort of traditional portrait art with some postmodern Flourishes. Anyway, what am I doing? Talking nonsense when there is a classic American novel to be read. We're heading towards the back end of chapter 18 here, and Clyde and Hortense have been at it after they skated around in more ways than one, meaning they've been skating around each other and literally skating around each other because they, you know, they're using each other and it's terrible. It's just terrible. So last thing that happened was he groped her and fondled her, not in a, not in a way, not in a, not in a, I don't know, uh, what's the word, predatory way, but... She just, she isn't into it, you know? And Clyde, sensing by now what the true state of her mind in regard to him must be stepped back and yet continued to gaze gloomily and hungrily at her, and she in turn merely stared at him. That's where we left it last time. So let us pick it up now on the back end of chapter 18 in American Tragedy. I thought you said you liked me, he demanded, almost savagely now, realizing that his dreams of a happy outing this day were fading into nothing. Well, I do when you're nice, she replied, slyly and evasively, seeking some way to avoid complications in connection with her original promises to him. Yes, you do, he grumbled. I see how you do. Why here we out here here we are out here now. They're out in the woods by themselves. The other group the the other couples that they came with have gone off into thickets and behind curves and under logs and whatever to go make out and play seven seconds in the closet or whatever they're whatever they're doing. Why here we are out here now, and you won't even let me touch you. I'd like to know what you meant by all that you said anyhow. Well, what did I say she countered merely to gain time? No, she basically promised him The moon. And by the moon, I mean her butt. As though you didn't know. Oh, well, but that wasn't to be right away either, was it? I thought we said. She paused dubiously. I know what you said, he went on. But I notice now that you don't like me and that's all there is to it. What difference would it make if you really cared for me whether you were nice to me now or next week or the week after? Gee whiz. You'd think it was something that depended on what I did for you, not whether you cared for me. In his pain, he was quite intense and courageous. I wasn't intense. There were courageous. God, what a terrible actor I am. And no wonder I can't get work. All right, let me try that again. This time, intense and courageous. Gee whiz. You'd think it was something that depended on what I did for you, not whether you cared for me. Eh, not, not bad. Well, that's not so, she snapped, angrily and bitterly. "'irritated by the truth of what he said. "'And I wish you wouldn't say that to me, either. "'I don't care anything about the old coat now, "'if you want to know it. "'And you can just have your old money back, too. "'I don't want it. "'And you can just let me alone from now on, too,' she added. "'I'll get all the coats I want without any help from you.' "'At this, she turned and walked away. "'And if Clyde had his wits about him, "'which he clearly does not.' He would turn and walk in the other direction, back to that big Packard that he drove up in and head on back to Kansas City. I mean, it's not his Packard. He can't drive in it. I sort of meant it more metaphorically than literally. But Clyde, now anxious to mollify her as usual, ran after her. Oh, come on, Clyde. The wet noodle? Oh, don't go, Hortense, he pleaded. Wait a minute. I didn't mean that either. Honest, I didn't. I'm crazy about you. Honest, I am. Can't you see that? Oh, gee, don't go now. I'm not giving you the money to get something for it. You can have it for nothing if you want it that way. There ain't anybody else in the world like you to me, and there never has been. You can have the money for all I care, all of it. I don't want it back. But gee, I did think you liked me a little. Don't you care for me at all, Hortense? He looked cowed and frightened, and she sensing her mastery over him, relented a little. All right, I'll just say it. I'll just say it, because I feel like I've been very kind to Dreiser up to this point, but this is exhausting. Maybe it's exhausting for the two of them too, but can't we edit the relationship a little bit so we get to its conclusion? We've been dancing back and forth with these two, the same pattern, repeating itself again and again, and nothing gets resolved. I was hoping this little trip to the inn would be the end of it for Clyde and Hortense, or it would escalate to something horrific. So far, neither has happened. Again, as I said, we're heading to the end of the chapter. Maybe there'll be something that occurs right at the end here that that will uh, make the whole chapter worthwhile. But so far, I'm just getting frustrated because it's just it's just the same conversation again and again and again. I did think you liked me a little. Of course, I do," she announced. But just the same. That don't mean that you can treat me any old way, either. You don't seem to understand that a girl can't do everything you want her to do just when you want her to do it. Just what do you mean by that, asked Clyde. Not quite sensing just what she did mean. I don't get you. Oh, yes, you do, too. She could not believe that he did not know. Oh, I guess I know what you're talking about. I know what you're going to say now, he went on disappointedly. That's that old stuff they all pull, I know. He was reciting almost verbatim the words and intonations even of the other boys at the hotel. Higby, Ratterer, Eddie Doyle, who having narrated the nature of such situations to him and how girls occasionally lied out of pressing dilemmas in this way, had made perfectly clear to him what was meant, and Hortense knew now that he did know. Gee, but well, I'm not sure that I know. I mean, it's clearly like, you know, she's saying, oh, I, you know, I can't put out just whenever you want me to put out. Fair enough. And uh, he's like, I don't get it. And she's like, oh, yes, you do. And then he says, yeah, I guess I do know what you're talking about. Well, Hortense knew now that he did know. Know what? That she's not going to put out? Maybe. Gee, but you're mean, she said in an assumed, hurt way. A person can never tell you anything or expect you to believe it. Just the same, it's true, whether you believe it or not. Oh, I know how you are, he replied sadly, yet a little loftily, as though this were an old situation to him. You don't like me, that's all. I can see that now, all right. Gee, but you're mean. Ugh. Again, like, like, we don't need all this. Like, he keeps saying it, she keeps denying it, He gets mad. She runs away. He comes back. He accuses her again. She denies it. Blah, blah, blah. Shut up. Shut up. I'm sorry to be so cold about it, but shut up, the two of you. Tired of your incessant pouting and jibber-jabbering and fighting and sort of making up, and then the accusations fly again. Just have at it or don't. But quit jerking us readers around. <sighs> Gee, but you're mean. She persisted, affecting an injured air. It's the God's truth, believe me or not. I swear it is. Honest it is. That she likes him a little bit. Whatever. Clyde stood there. In the face of this small trick, there was really nothing much to say as he saw it. He could not force her to do anything. If she wanted to lie and pretend, he would have to pretend to believe her. And yet a great sadness settled down upon him. He was not to win her after all. That was plain. He turned, and she, being convinced that he felt that she was lying now, felt it incumbent upon herself to do something about it, to win him around to her again. Please, Clyde. Please, she began now, most artfully. I mean that. Really, I do. Won't you believe me? But I will next week. Sure, honest, I will. Won't you believe that? I meant everything I said when I said it. Honest, I did. I do like you a lot. Won't you believe that too? Please. I mean, when she says it like that, I—I kind of believe her. I want to believe her. Look, I don't really believe her. We—we we, we both know that. But I was pleased with my own performance, and so to congratulate myself, I said that I believed her. But I, in truth, I don't. And Clyde, thrilled from head to toe by this latest phase of her artistry, meaning when she said, I'll put out for you next week, please. Come on. Oh, was she was she just talking about, ah, uh, was, was she just pretending she's on her period? Is that all that, Is that was that what that was about? Uh, you don't seem to understand that a girl can't do everything you want her to just when you want her to do it. Just what do you mean by that? I don't get you. Oh, yes, you do too. Huh, is that what that was all about? That is that what I didn't understand? And they didn't, and because and, they don't talk about that then. And I don't, and I, you know, I'm a boy and I don't think about these things. And so she's saying, well, I'll put out for you next week. Maybe that's what that is. I don't know. I think it is. I think that's what that's all about. All right. Mystery solved. And Clyde, thrilled from head to toe by this latest phase of her artistry, agreed that he would, would believe her, that is. And once more he began to smile and recover his gaiety. And by the time they reached the car to which they were all called a few minutes after by Heglund because of the time, and he had held her hand and kissed her often, he was quite convinced that the dream he had been dreaming was as certain of fulfillment as anything could be. Oh, the glory of it! when it should come true. All right, end of chapter 18. Clyde's just a sucker, is all he is. Let's take a break. We'll return in a moment on Obscure.
0: CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car.
1: Clyde has been taken in yet again by the artful lies of one Hortense Briggs. He, She has allowed him to kiss her often and hold her hand. And then they made their way back to town in that big old packard that was stolen as surely as Clyde's heart has been snatched. Chapter 19 For the major portion of the return trip to Kansas City, there was nothing to mar the very agreeable illusion under which Clyde rested. He sat beside Hortense, who leaned her head against his shoulder, and although Sparser, who had waited for the others to step in before taking the wheel, had squeezed her arm and received an answering and promising look, Clyde had not seen that. But the hour being late, and the admonitions of Hegland, Ratterer, and Higby being all for speed, in the mood of Sparser because of the looks bestowed upon him by Hortense, being the gayest and most drunken, it was not long before the outlying lamps of the environs began to show. For the car was rushed along the road at breakneck speed. At one point, however, where one of the eastern trunk lines approached the city, there was a long and unexpected and disturbing wait at a grade crossing, where two freight trains met and passed. Why was that disturbing? <laughs> Why at all was that disturbing? Why was there... Okay, so it was long and unexpected, sure, but disturbing? Why? You gotta wait for the trains. Oh, gosh. Oh, that's nervy of those trains making us wait. I'm, frankly, I'm disturbed. Farther in, at North Kansas City, it began to snow. Great, soft, slushy flakes feathering down and coating the road surface with a slippery layer of mud which required more caution than had been thus far displayed. It was then half-past five. Ordinarily, an additional eight minutes at high speed would have served to bring the car within a block or two of the hotel, but now, with another delay near Hannibal Bridge owing to grade crossing— it was twenty minutes to six before the bridge was crossed and Wyandot Street, Street reached, and already all four of these youths had lost all sense of the delight of the trip and the pleasure the companionship of these girls had given them, for already they were worrying as to the probability of their reaching the hotel in time. The smug, and Martinettish figure of Mr. Squires loomed before them all. Oh, so that's why they're disturbed because they're going to be late for work. I didn't even realize it was a work day for these kids. Well, I suppose it is. Pretty much every day is a work day for them, you know? So they got to be there six on the dot or probably a few minutes before, probably, I think they said like, you know, 10, 15 minutes before to change into their maroon bellhop uniforms and get all spiffed and shined up and ready to serve those guests for two bits and a smile. Gee, if we don't do better than this, observed Ratterer to Higby, who was nervously fumbling with his watch, we're not going to make it. We'll hardly have time as it is to change. Clyde, hearing him, exclaimed, Oh, crickets! Gee, the language in this book! Last time he was saying, you know, uh, uh, to deuce with you, and this time it's by crickets. I mean, there should be some sort of warning on the cover of this novel, letting readers of Delicate Sensibilities know that they're in for an earful. If they pick up this no-, no wonder novels have been banned and banished all throughout this great country of ours, when people are just saying, Oh, crickets, like it's nothing. Oh, crickets, I wish we could hurry a little. Gee, I wish now we hadn't come today. It'll be tough if we don't get there on time. And Hortense, noting his sudden tenseness and unrest, added, Don't you think you'll make it all right? Not this way, he said. But Hegland, who had been studying the flaked air outside... Worlds that seem dotted with falling bits of cotton called. Hey there, Willard. We certainly got to do better than this. It means derazoo for us if we don't get there on time. It means derazoo for us if we don't r a z, o, o. You know, I I I've never seen seen nor heard it before, but I take it to mean we're going to get the bums rush if we don't make it to the hotel on time. And Higby, for once stirred out of a gambler-like effrontery and calm, added, We'll walk the plank, all right, unless we can put up some good yarn. Can anybody think of anything? As for Clyde, he merely sighed nervously. And then, as though to torture them the more, the un- an unexpected crush of vehicles appeared at nearly every intersection, and sparser, who was irritated by this particular predicament, was contemplating with impatience the warning hand of a traffic policeman which, at the intersection of 9th and Wyandotte, had been raised against him. There goes his mitt again, he exclaimed. What can I do about that? I might turn over to Washington, but I don't know whether we'll save any time by going over there. A full minute passed before he was signaled to go forward. and swiftly... He swung the car to the right and three blocks over into Washington Street. But here the conditions were no better. Two heavy lines of traffic moved in opposite directions, and at each succeeding corner, several precious moments were lost as the cross traffic went by. Then the car would tear onto the next corner, weaving its way in and out as best it could. At 5th and Washington, Clyde exclaimed to Ratterer, how would it do if we got out at 17th and walked over? You won't save any time if I can turn over there, called Sparcer. I can get over there quicker than you can. He crowded the other cars for every inch of... I'm, I'm, I find myself, my heart palpitating a little bit. I'm very invested. As to whether they make it to the hotel on time or not. Speaking of which, just yesterday, the boy and I, I, I spoke of my daughter, but the boy and I, he of uh, 22 years of age, he and I turned on the YouTube and, you know, just kind of looking around for things to, to watch. We watched the 2023 Tetris Championships. Now, I can't remember the last time I played Tetris. I never cared for it that much when I did play it. But holy moly, what an exciting event that was. Uh, crickets was it exciting. You had... The, you had the French kid named Sydney versus the American kid named Fractal, best of five. Sydney took a two-nothing lead. Now Sydney apparently had never placed better than, than than eighth before, while Fractal was the defending champion. So if if Sydney could just hang on and win that final game, they would have been the the new Tetris champion. And I don't want to spoil it for you, but. You've never seen Tetris like this, I can tell you that. Look it up. He crowded the other cars for every inch of available space at 16th and Washington. Seeing what he considered a fairly clear block to the left, he turned the car and tore along that thoroughfare to as far as Wyandotte once more, just as he neared the corner and was about to turn at high speed, swinging in close to the curb to do so a little girl of about nine (laughs) <laughs> Is he gonna run over a little girl? I mean, look, let's be honest. I hope so. <laughs> I really, I really do hope so. I've been waiting for tragedy. I've been waiting for horror. Please let the little girl be crushed to death. Under the weight of this Packard. So, a little girl of about nine who was running toward the crossing jumped directly in front of the moving machine. Oh, God. <laughs> I shouldn't be like, I just read ahead. And because there was no opportunity given to him to turn and avoid her, she was struck and dragged a number of feet before the machine could be halted. At the same time, there arose piercing screens from at least half a dozen women and shouts from as many men who had witnessed the accident. I, I mean, I, <laughs> I know, it's not funny. <laughs> I mean, you know, it's funny just because mayhem and, in you know, fictional mayhem is funny in a way that, you know, th- those experiencing that accident in their fictional world surely found Horrific. But for me, sitting here in the Jill Schwartz Memorial Library, all I can do is is, uh, chortle with delight because we've spent, what, 123 pages waiting for an American tragedy and finally we have it in the shape of a little girl darting in front of a massive Packard crowded with horny teenagers. What could be better? Instantly. They all rushed toward the child who'd been thrown under and passed over by the wheels, and Sparcer, looking out and seeing them gathering about the fallen figure, was seized with an uninterpretable mental panic which conjured up the police, jail, his father, the owner of the car, severe punishment in many forms— And though by now all the others in the car were up and giving vent to anguished exclamations such as, oh God, he hit a little girl, oh gee, he's killed a kid, oh mercy, oh Lord, oh heavens, what'll we do now? He turned and exclaimed, Jesus, the cops, I gotta get out of this with this car. (laughs) So he's gonna flee the scene. I don't know if this is pre-licensed plates or not, but how many big Packards can there be in? Kansas City, I mean, maybe quite a few, but I'm guessing they'll figure out whose car it is if he tries to to flee. And without consulting the others, who were still half-standing, but almost speechless with fear, he shot the lever into first, second, and then high, and giving the engine all the gas it would endure, sped with it to the next corner beyond. Well... I guess we'll just leave it there. Why not? I mean, we're we're finally at an exciting juncture. We don't know what's going to happen, but we've got ourselves a hit and run. A, a legitimate crime has just taken place. Sparser, already in an absconded car has just struck and possibly killed a little girl of about 9 and then over the the murmurations and fear And panic of of his companions, he throws the car into gear and hightails it to the next corner. (laughs) So, you know, I I don't think he's going to, I'll be honest, I don't think he's going to get very far. We already know that there's traffic cops all over the place. My guess is some of the bystanders are going to run after the car and chase him down and flag him and beat him half to death. Sparser, anyway, that's what I would do. I'd beat Sparser half to death. And then I'd run over him with his own Packard. Well, we we're in it now, aren't we? We're just we're we're in this soup, are we not? It took us a while to get there, but gee, we finally made it. We're in a cauldron of bubbling liquid and we're all getting cooked. Nobody more than Sparser, although Clyde is a distant second. His own goose is cooked too, at least as it comes in relationship to uh to Hortense Briggs. Although, you know, after this, when they're all hauled off in the paddy wagon, who knows what kind of turn that relationship is gonna take. Probably not one for the better, I would imagine. But who knows? Maybe this will bring them closer together. I don't think so. And there's no reason it should, but maybe. So we'll leave it there. We'll leave it there with our first American tragedy. And and what better way to describe in American tragedy than that which comes via automobile. That most American of contraptions. And don't start with me about how the Americans didn't invent the automobile. Maybe not. But we certainly adopted it as our own more so than any other nation in in the early part of the 20th century. I mean, we we just went cuckoo for cars. Did we not? Created a whole... System of Interstate Highways, 1950s for our automobiles and our tanks and planes. I know, I know. I don't want to hear any guff about Eisenhower and the real purpose of the National Highway Bill. But, nevertheless, the roads are stretching before Clyde and company, and now they have come to a sudden and abrupt end. Remember, we were, we were, they were kind of foreshadowing this earlier when they were heading up to the, to the inn, and I said, I think there's going to be an accident. Or at least I was hoping for one. I was hoping the whole car would overturn on the the snow and ice and everybody would be killed. That didn't happen, but the next best thing just did. Don't know how it's all going to shake out, but probably not very well. And we'll find out, soon enough, on another scintillating episode of Obscure. But until then, I wish you adieu. This season of Obscure is produced by me, Michael Ian Black, and Robin Lynn. Our theme music is by Craig Wedren. We rely on you, the listeners, for support. So please go to patreon.com slash michaelianblack and you will get early access to ad-free episodes and more content from me. That's patreon.com
0: slash michaelianblack. See you next time.